Have you ever had someone lie about you? Could be anything from a story that makes you sound bad in which they embellish the details. Maybe you went on a fishing trip and you tripped and made a splash and they made it sound like you fell in and, and they had to go in and rescue you. They just, they just told a story in a way that puts you kind of in a bad light. Maybe it's uh, somebody at work really doesn't like you and so they say stuff about you to try to get you in trouble, to try to get you fired or, or whatever. Uh, there's many different possibilities on the spectrum of people being dishonest or, or making false accusations about someone else. What's a natural response to a false accusation? How do we feel? What do we want to do? Self-defense. Hey, I, I didn't do that, or here's why you're wrong. That, that's our first response. But what we see in Psalm 4 is a little bit different from what we would expect, perhaps. And as we come to Psalm 4 tonight, we find another song of trust uh, like Psalm 3. Some would put it in the category of a lament, and it certainly has qualities of that as well. But the, the difference in my mind between a lament and a song of trust is that the song of trust tends to end on a more positive note. Here's God. Here's his deliverance. Here he's taking care of me. A lament doesn't always resolve that way. Sometimes it's just, here's my situation. It's difficult. God, I need your help but there's not always an expression of, of God's immediate help and answer to prayer. Another difference between this psalm and what we looked at last week would be the fact that Psalm 3, we had sort of the historical setting. David fled from Absalom, and that was the occasion, the, the reason for him writing Psalm 3. But we come to Psalm 4, and we don't have any historical information about it. Some have tried to connect Psalm 3 and 4 because they're right next to each other in the book of Psalms but I don't know that we can necessarily do that. That being said, they are both calls to God for help. The one has more to do with physical deliverance. David's life and his rule as king was threatened in Psalm 3. In Psalm 4, it is more his reputation, his standing, how people perceive him that is in question. It seems that some were slandering his character. So what was David's response? And related to that, how should we respond to false accusations? I think the general idea that we see from this psalm is this. Keep trusting God even when someone lies about you. That's the, the overarching idea, the main point. But what are some specific things that we can do as we have that response? I think there's at least four of them that we see in this psalm. The first one is in verse 1. We need to cry to God. Verse 1 says, Answer me when I call. O God of my righteousness, you have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. And I think I've said this several times as we've looked at different examples of prayers or different psalms. When we encounter difficulty, my first response, your first response, is not always to call to God for help. Certainly nothing wrong with seeking wise counsel from fellow believers, encouragement and comfort and all those sorts of things. Certainly nothing wrong with uh, a number of the things that we might turn to to give us help at that sort of a time, family and, and so forth, in addition to uh, godly brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet, if in our coming across difficulty, we fail to turn to God as a natural response and quite probably the first response, then we, at least in our minds, don't have quite clear the importance of seeking God and His help. 
either we think that we don't need to turn to him first because we can sort of figure it out on his uh, on our own and then we discover that we can't or we're just so in the habit of going other places that we don't think i need to turn to god first this psalm reminds us we see the first response here is answer me when i call he describes god in three ways first of all he says god is righteous O god of my righteousness now there's two different ways that we could take this that that god is the source of righteousness for his people and that is certainly true god's people are righteous because god is righteous because he creates righteousness in them because he sets an example of righteousness for them but there is also a sense in which god of my righteousness speaks to the fact that god is the one who is defending david's righteousness against those who are accusing him we see that in light of verse 2 so we see that god is righteous and god's righteousness is a it's a comfort and a condemnation it's a comfort when we're living up to what god wants us to do because we can say here's god here's what he's told me to do and my life matches up to it it's a condemnation when we know that that's not the case but in this psalm we see that it is the case he's saying i am living righteously god i'm appealing to you as my righteous god answer me when i call god is not only a god of righteousness but he's also a god who is faithful he says you have relieved me in my distress he could be thinking of one specific instance he could be thinking of a number of instances throughout david's life there were a number of cases in which he was in danger and god delivered him when he fought the philistines when saul pursued his life uh, any number of cases at which he could have died or been severely harmed and yet god watched out for him god took care of him god met even his needs beyond physical safety uh, remember when he one time when he was running from saul and he goes into the temple and the priest gives him some of the bread and, and water to drink god met his physical needs as well so in his times of distress when he didn't have a place to go when he didn't have his basic needs god took care of him god was faithful and this is connected to the idea of righteousness the righteousness demonstrated that david had a relationship to god the faithfulness of god to his people is also connected to the fact that he has a relationship with them it's not that god is generally faithful to everyone in the world in the same way that god is faithful to his people he has a special relationship with his people so god was faithful in the past which then was the basis for david coming to him again if someone has showed consistently this is how i am what's our expectation that's how they're going to continue to be so if god was faithful god was faithful god was faithful you come before god you pray to him you say god you've been faithful in the past i expect you to be faithful again and we know that this is how god is and then we see that last phrase that god also is gracious he says be gracious to me and hear my prayer it doesn't specifically say god you are gracious but again the reason i think david says be gracious to me is because god's been that way in the past grace is god's kindness that we don't deserve grace is when we get something that we didn't earn we didn't work for god gives it to us because he's a good god in light of that david can confidently say 
Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Be gracious to me by hearing my prayer. And so we need to cry to God. Cry to God because he's the one who can help. But we also need to, I think, remember whose opinion matters. When someone lies about you, ask God for help. But when someone lies about you, remember whose opinion matters. Look at verses 2 and 3. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. So we see, first of all, that the wicked accuse God's people. We see this in verse 2. How do they accuse God's people? By dragging their names in the mud. Say, okay, that's not, that's not clear enough for me. What, what do they do? Well, they say that Christians are all hypocrites. Is that true? If you're a Christian and you're not a hypocrite, it's not true of everyone, right? Uh, they'll say Christians are all hypocrites, so that's the reason for not coming to church. They'll say Christians are all, are all proud. They'll say any number of other things. These are the sorts of accusations that are made against Christians by people that we encounter in the world. And maybe they wouldn't say it against you specifically, but they'll say it generally about the group of which you're a part, right? The challenge is, sometimes they have reason to say those things. Because they've known someone who said, I'm a Christian, and was a hypocrite. They've known someone who said, I'm a Christian, but was a liar. They've known someone who said, I was a Christian, I'm a Christian, but they were way worse at their job than unsaved people. They just didn't try, they didn't care, and yet they would say, hey, I'm a Christian, as though the way that they were living was going to help the cause of Christ when it certainly wasn't. And that's a challenge, because on the one hand, we recognize that we're sinners, and so we should rest in God's forgiveness. But on the other hand, we recognize that we should at least, to a certain extent, be living up to the expectation of what a good person is in our society in the respect of doing well in our works, taking care of our family, all those sorts of things. Not morally speaking, because society has a wrong view of, of what's right and wrong in certain moral issues, but generally speaking, we shouldn't put ourselves in a situation where a lost person can say, here's a Christian, and here's me, and this guy's not even trying. But there are these accusations. How long will my honor become a reproach? What's a reproach? A reproach is something that's an excuse for someone to speak badly about you. Also, they lied about him. How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? So they were saying things to drag down his reputation, and they were loving what is worthless and seeking to deceive people, probably in context, about what David was like. Here's where I think there is perhaps a connection point to the story of Absalom. What was Absalom doing? Standing at the Sadie Gate. David doesn't care about you. I don't think that we can say that this psalm is exclusively about that, but I think we can certainly see a connection there of something, at least one of the things David could have had in mind when he's writing this psalm. Here's someone saying, he's not a good king, 
He doesn't care about you. And we encounter people like that. They love what's worthless. They're happy when they're speaking lies about other people. How do we respond to that? We have to remember that God vindicates his people. So the wicked accuse God's people. For that matter, Satan is called the great accuser, right, of the brethren. And he's the one ultimately standing behind these accusations. But God vindicates his people. What what am I saying by vindicates? I'm saying God's opinion is the one that matters. When God looks at you, God evaluates you on the basis of your relationship with him, not on the basis of what the people around you are saying. Now, to the extent that what people around you are saying points out areas of sin in your life, listen to them. But when you have someone who doesn't know God saying, you're foolish, you're a hypocrite, you're a liar, whatever, when you're doing the things that God has told you to do, whose opinion matters? Whose evaluation matters? God's is the one that matters. God's is the one that holds more weight. Look at verse 3. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. God has chosen his people. Again, it's not on the basis of us being better people by default than all the people around us in the world, because we're not. We're sinners too. And yet God has chosen us, begun a work in us, and continues that work in us. And on that same basis, God hears his people's prayers. And this again points to the fact of a relationship with God, because God hears the prayers of those with whom he has a relationship. Certainly he hears the prayers of, lo- of someone who doesn't know him when they first turn to him. But I think we would all recognize God doesn't hear the prayers of an unsaved person help me out of this situation, fix this problem in my life, in the same way that he does the prayers of someone who belongs to him, someone who's part of his family, someone who's one of his followers. So the wicked accuse. God vindicates. Remember whose opinion matters. Even in the midst of that, even in the midst of those accusations, we can urge sinners to repent. And this is a question in verse 4. Is he talking to himself or is he talking to those around him? I think it's quite probable that he is talking, as he does in verse 2, to those who are falsely accusing him. What does he say to them? Tremble and do not sin. So he's saying in verse 4, sinners need to turn away from their sin. How? By showing fear for God. That word tremble is either associated with fear or with anger. In this context, I think he's saying, fear God. So you're lying about me. There's no basis in your lying about me. You need to stop lying, and you need to repent, and you need to fear God. How do you know if you have repented? When you stop doing the things that are sinful. It says, tremble and do not sin. So the way that you know if you actually fear God is when you stop doing the things that God hates. You, f- you fear God, you tremble, and you stop sinning. The specific sin here, of course, is false accusations, but there's any number of ways that we could apply this idea to. Furthermore, when he says, meditate in your heart upon your bed, I think he's saying that an awareness of God is supposed to so saturate your thinking that even when you're lying awake at night, that's what pops into your head. 
So how do you know when the sinner has turned away from his sin? When the thing that he wakes up in the middle of the night thinking about is, does this please God, does this not please God? And then when it says, and be still, I think in a sense it is expressing his opposition to God. Uh, He has had opposition to God. The be still is, now he needs to stop showing opposition to God and start obeying God. Uh, Perhaps a parallel to this would be uh, when Jesus uh, tells the sea to be still. What's it doing? It's obeying. I think in a similar way, David is saying, be still, stop going your own way, obey God, listen to him. So we see that we are to urge sinners to repent, urge them to turn away from their sin, urge them to show that their salvation is real. Not just internally, not just only the things that they can see, because fearing God, trembling, um, stopping sinning, meditating your heart upon your bed, being still, those might or might not be things that people around you see. But there were external acts that showed repentance was real. Look at verse 5. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. In other words, do what pleases God, not just in your thinking, but also in your outward actions. How did they show that they trusted in God in the time that David is speaking? They would go and offer sacrifices. You didn't offer sacrifices. You weren't a good Israelite. You weren't following God. There were other things that God required of them that were difficult or painful or or a, a high expectation, but if they really followed God, if they really believed in Him, they would do those things. And so it's not enough just to say, oh yeah, I think about God, I'm a spiritual person, you know, all those sorts of things. There has to be a demonstration of your relationship with God by doing the things that God has asked you to do. And then that last phrase there, and trust in the Lord. And that's a contrast It's a continuation of what he said in verse 4, and it's a contrast to what they're doing in verse 2. Verse 2, they're loving what is worthless. There's parallels between this and in the wisdom literature, like in Proverbs, uh, the fool goes after what's worthless. He loves things that are empty and vain, all that sort of thing. Instead of loving those things that are empty, that are worthless, trust in God. And again, if someone has genuinely repented of their sin, They will show it by the things that they think about, by their attitude toward God, by their outward actions, and by following God wholeheartedly. But then this comes up again. We see in verse 6 that uh, many are saying, who will show us any good? And so what should we say in response to this? I think verses 6 through 8 tell us this, answer doubt with faith, answer doubt with faith. Many are saying, who will show us good? Who will show us any good? People will question God's power. They'll question God's character. This could be enemies. This could be friends. Think about Job's friends. Did they question what God was doing in Job's life? To some extent, because they gave wrong reasons for why it was taking place. Uh, Does this happen potentially in our situation? Is it possible both for those who don't believe in God and for those who believe in God to question, what is God doing? Certainly. So what's the response? Ask God to show his blessing. When it says, lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord, 
a uh, number of people see a parallel, and I think that they see it validly, to the priestly blessing. The blessing that God told Aaron and his descendants to give to the people of Israel. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Pretty much the exact same thing that's being said in this verse is what the priests were supposed to pray as a blessing over the people of Israel. So in response to someone who says, what good has God done us? David's response is, God, bless your people. That's an interesting response because you would think that it might be, well, let's just sort of argue with them about why they're wrong or those sorts of things. But instead, he's saying, God, do what you've promised to do. Bless your people. And God certainly shows blessing to us, although in different ways to some extent than he did to the Israelites. And then he, he, he turns this blessing into a prayer for God's help which incidentally I think parallels what we've been trying to do on Wednesday nights. Take truths of Scripture, pray them to God. Not only do we recognize people question God's power, not only is it appropriate to ask God to show His blessing as a response to that doubt, but it is also important for us to find satisfaction and security in God. Look at verse 7. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. Now, he's speaking of the time of harvest. Potentially, he's describing a situation in which the people that are falsely accusing him or the people who are saying, what good has God shown, are experiencing God's blessing in the form of a good harvest. And perhaps, potentially, he is not experiencing that same situation. Or perhaps he's just using a comparison. Either way, he's saying... Their experience of harvest and seeming blessing from God, even though they're not following Him, even though they're questioning Him, what's more valuable? The harvest that they receive or the joy that He receives from God? You have put gladness in my heart. So David is more excited, more thankful, more uh, grateful to God for his relationship with God than he is for the things that God gives him. And that, I think, is an important lesson for us because it's really easy for us to treat God like we would treat our grandparents. Here's my birthday list. All right, you checked off these things. All right, I feel happy towards you. Or, I'm so excited about the thing that they gave me that I could care less about the fact that they're there. I'm just excited that they gave me this toy. We can be the same way with God. God Here's my list of things that I want. As you check them off, maybe I'll say thank you, maybe I won't. But I don't really care so much about you. I just care about the fact that you've given me the stuff that I want. We all struggle with this. David is saying the joy of the relationship that he has with God is more important than a bountiful harvest and all of his needs being met. So not only does he have joy, whether he has lack or whether he has bounty, but he also has security. Look at verse 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, Lord, make me to dwell in safety. And there's similarities between this and what we saw last week in Psalm 3. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. David was running away from Absalom, and he was able to rest securely. David has people lying about his character and saying, where is God in all of this? 
and yet he's able to lay down at night and sleep because his security is in God. Again, it's connected with verse 3. Whose opinion matters? What's most important to me? Is it what people think of me? Is it whether somebody else has nicer stuff than me? Is it my relationship with God? He's saying his relationship with God is the basis for his security in life. You alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. So what do we see from this passage? We see that we need to call to God, value God's opinion over that of people, call people around us who may be sinning against us in this way to repent, not so that we can sort of say, not in an I told you so sort of way, you're wrong and you need to stop doing this to me, but because we're genuinely concerned about them. And then finally, that we answer the doubt that is expressed by these people or others watching the situation with faith. If we do these things, how then could we pray this passage? We could take something like the first few verses and say, God, someone has lied about me. But you know the truth. They're right to some extent. I am a sinner. I am wicked. And yet, by your grace, I'm seeking to live in a way that pleases you. So, Lord, let their lies be made clear. Let their... Uh, it, uh, help them to see that it's by your power that I'm following you and living righteously. Show yourself strong on my behalf. Maybe we come to that last verse and we could pray, God, help me to find joy. Even though I'm, I, I want to be dissatisfied because I compare myself with this other situation, help me to find joy and see that you are better and more important than any of those other things. Whatever the false accusations you face from people around you, Remember that God is there even in the midst of those things. Ask for his help, value his opinion more, call sinners to repent and answer doubt with faith. Keep trusting God even when someone lies about you.